This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. That's what's so hard and funny about communication is that you can try to script things. You can try to make it perfect and you will find that nothing goes as planned, um, that your perfect conversation turns out to be exactly what your child doesn't need, but they have some other plan for you. (laughs) Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is The Art of Talking with Children with our guest, Rebecca Rowland. Rebecca is an oral and written language specialist in the Neurology Department of Children's Hospital Boston and a lecturer at Harvard University. As a nationally certified speech and language pathologist, she has worked clinically with populations ranging from early childhood through high school and provided teacher professional development. As faculty and module director at Harvard Medical School, she lectures on topics of communication, mental focus, and creativity. She frequently consults with organizations working to design powerful learning experience for kids and adults, including the World Bank. Rebecca is the author of her new book, The Art of Talking with Children, The Simple Keys to Nurturing Kindness, Creativity, and Confidence in Kids, which we are going to be talking a lot about today. She has her doctorate in education from Harvard Graduate School of Education, her master's in speech and language pathology from the MGH Institute of Health Professions, and a master's in English from Boston University. And of course, she has her bachelor's in English from Yale. Lots of education, wonderful education. Rebecca lives in Boston with her husband and two children. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I'm holding your brand new comprehensive book that we're going to dive into, um, which is a culmination of personal and professional work spanning many years. Um, To start, tell us a little bit about where you're from and a little bit about your upbringing. Yeah, so um, I'm actually from the Atlanta, Georgia area, so I'm a Southerner at heart, Mm -hmm. Um, and I spent my whole life there. I did move up north to college, obviously, and for all my different (laughs) degrees. Um, but I was always very interested as a young child in writing and poetry and just self-expression. So that was something that always came naturally to me and something I was really drawn to. Um, I wasn't quite sure what to do with that exactly. So, um, I did go to Boston university for my master's in English 
And along the way, I started wondering kind of how can I reach out a little bit more um, and have more of an impact? So I remember actually um, one Christmas, I was writing a paper on Emily Dickinson in a cafe. And I was thinking like, this is, there's snow outside and this should be so wonderful. But I was thinking, well, who's going to read my paper, you know, other than my professor and I just feel like a hermit here. So mm -hmm. I realized I really want to be out in the world and kind of be meeting people and teaching people and kind of um, in a more relational um, kind of focus. So I actually moved to New York after that um, mm -hmm. and then to Greece where I oh. began teaching in high school, uh, in high school there. And when I was there, I started to realize um, there were so many kids I met with so many challenges and I just mm -hmm. didn't know what to do. Um, so I was there and thinking, um, well, I'd love to help these kids. I was tutoring them as mm -hmm. I was teaching and I just mm -hmm. had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> you know, and I, yeah. they were, a lot of them were kind of labeled behavior problems or, you know, they were dropping out of school. Um, and I just felt kind of helpless. You know, I was engaged yeah. with the teaching, but I just really didn't know what I should do. Um, so at that point I started kind of researching, well, what, um, what can I do to reach these kids? Uh, and I found out about a graduate program actually in speech and language. And I realized, you know, this really was linking a lot of my interests. I've always been fascinated by language and poetry and kind of education. So this mm -hmm. seemed kind of like a culmination mm -hmm. of these two areas. So that's kind of how all my education led me to, um, to that nice. work. And nice. once I had kids, I think that added a whole other yeah, layer. For sure. I, um, when do you remember thinking about the whole concept of learning differences or learning challenges and now what we call neurodiversity? You know, like, because that we didn't get mm -hmm. that training. I mean, I didn't get that training exactly. going through. I kind of like stumbled into what? Wait, people learn differently? What? Exactly. Yeah. And I actually I, I started realizing that when I was a, still a student because it was interesting, even personally. Um, I had I went to a math and science high school, uh, which wasn't really my my forte. Um, but I was great in certain areas. So like statistics, I could really I could handle it. I understood everything. But there was this geometry. And for me, it just made no sense at all. Nothing I could do would fix my brain to understand geometry <laughs> um, and the way shapes moved and everything. Um, and I started to wonder, well, why is that? Why can everybody do this and get this? And I just can't get it. Um, mm -hmm. And when I, I went to Greece, I saw so many kids kind of in a, in a more extreme version of that situation, uh, just really struggling. So that's kind of when I started investigating it. Mm -hmm. um, and speech and language pathology is, um, it, it's so important. I think a lot of people think about it in terms of articulation, which of course it is very important to help people with articulating their thoughts. Um, also receptive language, receiving language, like there's so much to language and communication that we just take for granted. And then in my sphere of work in our, our centers, you know, we've worked with speech and language past, we rely on for um, social pragmatic communication, right? Teaching exactly. kids, uh, particularly kids on the spectrum or having uh, social processing issues, how to really understand language, even bright, pe bright people exactly can come into this world without the hard wiring of understanding communication. Exactly. And that's what I found to be so interesting is often when people meet me, the first thing they say is, 
oh, you know, when I was a child, I had trouble pronouncing my R's, you know, or right, right. I, I really wasn't talking very much when I was two. And that's kind of what people think of, I think, when they think speech and language. But mm -hmm. there is just so much more to it. And most of what I've done and what I continue to do has nothing to do with um, articulating your R's, although right. people still do that. <laughs> Mine right. is much more about the social aspect and staying on topic or how to how to know, you know, impulse control, how to know when to enter a conversation. There's just so much um, that mm -hmm. goes across the spectrum of communication, for sure. And then this thing happens. We're professionals, really passionate about what we're doing. And then some of us have children, which makes everything just come into sharp focus. We're humbled by it. I remember being exactly. like, oh, wait. I used to have a much easier time just blaming parents for everything. Now, as a parent, it's like, it's not that simple. Like, it's so complicated. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so how did parenting start to change the way you started to look at your work and communication? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, it did just complexify everything, for sure. That was one thing. Yeah. Uh, it made me realize that every child really truly is different. So from the moment you meet them, you know, mm -hmm. there's, you never really understand what's going to come. So always just being in the moment and waiting to see kind of what will become of this child for me was so fascinating and to kind of be present at that evolution. I mean, so often I would see kids and they were two or 10, you know, or 15 and they were kind of at a stage, but for me to be able to kind of witness that whole development um, for me was just fascinating personally. Um, but it also gave me a lot of compassion for other parents. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I remember seeing people who would get angry, you know, when parents were five minutes late to a meeting with their young kids or late to the play date or something like this. And I kind of was like, well, yeah, I see that they're late, you know, maybe they shouldn't be late. But uh, <laughs> after having, you know, a two year old who was having a tantrum, you know, you think, okay, I see. Oh, why yeah. they're late. <laughs> There's a lot <laughs> so going on behind the scenes. Totally. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Did um, did you start to pay attention to language and communication differently with, I mean, like you have, it goes from being in the mm -hmm. clinic to being like 24 hour in a research um, center with your own children. Right. <laughs> yes, uh, definitely. And actually, it's funny because my I have a lot of friends that I went to grad school with. We're all sort of speech and language people. And we all had kids kind of around the same time. So it was pretty hilarious because we would meet and without even meaning to, you know, we'd watch our kids running around and we'd say, oh, that's great joint attention. You know, <laughs> they would look at something or, oh, I see their, you know, their mean length of utterance has gotten bigger, you know, or something. So, <laughs> and we kind of laugh because it's, you know, you don't really do that with kids typically, but you almost right. can't help it. It's sort of built into your brain now that you see language through this very kind of scientific lens. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And mm -hmm. always, kind of also thinking, well, is that typical for development or that's an early sound or, um, you know, you really do start to um, pay very close attention, um, almost mm -hmm. unconsciously. Your, um, your book is part memoir, you know, part memoir, part research, obviously lots of education and mm -hmm. lots of suggestions. Um, what was the process of deciding the, the the voice that you know the tone and how to present all of this information to everybody yeah so it was actually quite a journey i would say so i started out i've obviously been writing essays for a really long time um even before my kids were born 
And once they were born, it just kind of became a natural evolution that I was really thinking about parenting a lot and about language and kind of brought them in as characters into my essays. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was something I was very much thinking at first from a memoir perspective. Um, But the more I did it, the more I started to kind of bring these to other people, bring them to readers. And they would say, well, you have these little moments where you say, well, we know that empathy develops you know, in X and Y way, or, or we know that, um, you know, this was far, you know, far from typical in terms of their development. And we don't really know that, you know, so you might know that because that's your background. Um, so why don't you explore that a little bit and kind of expand and make this kind of a, a bigger discussion? And I realized that was kind of an opportunity that I almost didn't realize how much I was using my own knowledge in my parenting life. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, well, yeah, this really is something I'm interested in. And I think that is interesting for other parents to understand as well. So it kind of started out much more internally, I think, and then became a natural evolution kind of blending the two as I mm-hmm. wanted to bring this to a wider audience. Well, and it's a really nice way to join people and to, um, I mean, as a reader, it's there. It's so easy to connect with you because you're talking as an you know an expert um, with years of training and research and practice, and then also as a parent who's living it and trying all this, you know, <laughs> trying to purposefully engage in conversations that go well, and some that you're like, mm, well, let's try that one again, <laughs> right? Exactly. And I I think that's what's so humbling about it. And I think just in general, I I read a ton of parenting books, um, both my own parenting and then also as writing this. And Mm -hmm. I was sometimes really frustrated by suggestions. I thought, well, that does sound great. That sounds amazing. But there's no way that would work in my house. Or, you know, if I tried that, my kids would just laugh at me. Uh, And I think that's true for everyone. I mean, Mm -hmm. even the suggestions in my book, they're not meant for everyone. You know, it's just much more... Um, of an experience to say, well, this worked for me and, you know, see if this works for you or not. Um, yeah. So I think that that, for me, brought a different lens. Mm. So I'm thinking about a few different things from your introduction that really, that really stuck to me. Um, first of all, one, I just have to call out that exchange with your daughter in the museum about mummies and about life and where people go before and after. Uh, just for everyone reading it, just uh, or everyone who's going to read it, it, um, <laughs> it, it's humbling to hear the wisdom of a child <laughs> when we really just get quiet and listen. Yeah, that's very true. And I think has been true for me many, many, many times in my parenting life when mm-hmm. I sit and listen. I think, wow, that is just that's much deeper than I would have expected. <laughs> yes. And, and then. And what you really talk about there is just how important it is to slow down and listen. Um, because as you also point out at the end of weekends, you know, talking to your husband, it's like, what did we do this weekend? What did we talk about? Like, I know we were busy the whole time. I know we were engaging with our kids. Like, And it's really about this journey of being more purposeful and paying attention to what we're saying and what we're eliciting from our kids to really be intentional. Exactly. Yeah, I do think, uh, I think a lot about mindfulness and I know you talk about it a lot on the mm-hmm. show and I actually do think this does 
bring a lot of just about mindfulness into our conversations, just how can we have mindful conversations? Um, but obviously with kids, mindful conversations doesn't mean kind of what you might think of and just sit and meditate with your kids or sit in silence. And, you know, uh, it's just much more about that in the moment, slowing down, taking the time, even, mm-hmm. you know, asking, just tell me more. So these really open-ended prompts that, um, that don't assume a lot mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of times, I actually talk a little bit about embedded questions and the fact that we say, you know, you went to bed early, right? Or you're feeling happy, aren't you? You know, and, uh, <laughs> and it's so easy to do. And I do it myself. Um, totally. But I think just actually taking a step back and saying, well, what if we don't do that? What if we sort of strip away our assumptions and think about what's really there? Totally. And the way I've always thought about that, um, you know, those of us who grew up on crime shows and there's plenty of them now, it's... Um, like we're always leading the witness. We don't intentionally do it, but we're like leading the witness. If you exactly. think about questioning, like right, exactly. really asking a question. It brings me back to my my first clinic experience, actually, as a speech pathologist in training. Um, I was working with aphasia patients who are, you know, patients who are, have had a stroke and who have um, word finding difficulties. And so I knew they would have trouble talking. And I was sitting with my supervisor and a patient and I said to them something like, oh, how are you doing? Did you have a good weekend? I bet it was good, wasn't it? You know, and kind of on and on. And my supervisor said to me at one point, you know, one question, then wait, (laughs) you know, (laughs) one question, wait. (laughs) And I was like, okay, okay, I get it. (laughs) And I realized that for a lot of people, that's really good advice that we tend to kind of pile on um, rather than just stop and wait. Totally. And whether someone has a true aphasia or just a more divergent processing style, which so many do, you know, so so many times it's like we're asking questions and questions and someone's like just (laughs) formulating their answer for the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the way the the way you've organized the book, it's so it's so nicely laid out. And with the ideas like we can have conversations to increase empathy. We can have conversations with the goal of increasing independence, with increasing resilience, with increasing connection and communication. Like it's really there's really so many ways to interact with kids. Um and all of this I I I'm not all this, but it started a lot with for you with rich talk. Um tell tell everyone about rich talk. Your 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 discovery. Yes. Yeah. So I really started wondering, well, I thought, you know, conversation is a gateway to so many other things. So as a speech pathologist, I started with, you know, vocabulary, obviously it can improve your language skills. And, but I was like, oh, there's so much more. There's just, you know, almost every aspect of children's thriving. You can think about how can conversation actually get you there? Um, and I started wondering, well, what are the aspects of conversation that do that? Or why is it so powerful? And I realized I sort of honed it down to these three areas where um, it really sort of is adaptive. So kind of we're actually moving with your child um, and then being a back and forth. So you're kind of thinking almost like a ping pong ball effect, some people call it. But um, it's sort of someone says something and you really respond to them, but not just, you know, responding somewhere off in the distance, but actually responding to what they're really saying. So actually sitting with them thinking, well, what is that? tell me, how can that change me? Um, and the last one is really being child-driven. So that doesn't mean all of our conversations should be, you know, only what the child wants to say, but just to really take the time and say, well, what is it that this person in front of me wants to tell me? 
And how can I go with that? Um, and I think that's so important, especially when, you know, we can be in a rush or we can come home and we want to know, you know, how did the day go? And they want to know, well, can you fix my truck? <laughs> you know? And so I think just to really sit with that, well, you know, what is it about this thing that's interesting to you and why is it interesting? I think that's where so much of the wealth of talk can come in because um, mm -hmm. kids are so motivated to talk about that. You're making me think about the question that people often ask about quality versus quantity in terms of busy lives, right? People are coming in, they have their laptops, you have your cell phone, you have your right. uh, tablet, you have a meeting. It's, <laughs> it, it does take this mindful presence, this intentional presence. And what do you think about quantity over quality? Yeah, so I definitely, I am somewhere in the middle, I would say kind of a middle ground. I think I know there's some people who say, oh, don't worry about the amount of time you spend with kids. It's only about the quality. Mm -hmm. And I think that to some extent, that's true. I think there's been so much pressure put on everyone, um, obviously, especially moms, to be kind of there all the time, always mm -hmm. for their kids. And, and that's just not realistic, especially today. So I actually, and I've had this conversation with my husband and within my family as well, that I think um, you do need a certain amount of time. But you also need your own time. You need your tech time. You need your time away. So what I really think is that if you can just start with the smallest moments and really think about, well, how can I be fully present in this moment, um, whether it's even 10 minutes, 12 minutes, um, you'll find that that kind of becomes a routine and that kids are asking for it. Mm -hmm. So that then it becomes easier and easier to do that. Um, it might feel kind of odd or awkward at first, you know, to set everything down. But I think if you start in small little chunks, um, then I think that is much more effective in some ways than trying to weave it all the time. Um, I also think a lot about actually having time when, you know, mommy's going to work now, you know, I'm on my computer, I'm not going to be pretending I'm interacting. You're going to watch TV. Okay. So we're doing that for half an hour. Um, everyone's doing their own tech thing. And now we're going to close everything and come together. And I think that mm -hmm. that can actually be a much more effective way for everyone to feel satisfied mm -hmm. um, right. rather than feeling like, oh, we're always half on, you know, right. to really say, well, here's our time together. Well, and I like that because I mean, a few reasons you're, um, you're being thoughtful about it. And you're <laughs> communicating about it, right? Like it's this whole interaction that we're setting guidelines with the kids about, hey, this is what this time is for. And then we're going to have this time. So it's modeling for them, again, thinking about your time and trying and thinking about them and how to consciously use our time as opposed to just kind exactly. of go from moment to moment, which is so easy to do. <laughs> exactly. um, we, so we are close to two years into a pandemic. Um, when we started, when show, it's interesting talking to other shows and being, and this show for, there was always the question, do we want this to be pandemic related or do we want to make, or make this evergreen? And here's what we've come to. Mm -hmm. It's, it's all both like pandemic, this, we're going to be living in this way for a while, um, in some, and things have probably changed more with more acceleration towards technology because of the need for technology, for communication, for education, for work through exactly. COVID. So you talk a lot about in-person communication. So 
Tell us your feeling about in-person communication versus digital communication, like we're doing right now. And, um, right. <laughs> you know, and just your different thoughts for parents, how, how to think about scheduling real time versus digital time. Yeah. So obviously I wrestle with this as do I know so many other parents, um, And I really would say I see it, I know you mentioned either or, I can almost see it as a continuum in some Mm -hmm. way. Um, So I really focus and I would encourage other parents to focus on the interactive component. Um, There's a lot of research out there actually that shows that if you're going to even teach kids online, the really important thing is sort of the contingent interaction, meaning that the child's able to say something and get a response Mm -hmm. and then get a response to that. Um, so it's not so much, are you on a screen or are you in person? You know, it really is, is there this back and forth interaction? Is there a chance for kids to really get their needs met, sort of express what they're thinking, get feedback about that? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it's inevitable. Kids are going to be tutored online. They're going to do voice lessons online. You know, there's just, there's a lot that's going online. And I don't think, um, you know, saying that's wrong or bad is is helpful for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I would say that there is a value to being in person present um, in terms of all of the different cues that you're getting. So when you're actually in person, you know, you do get that the touch that can be so important. You know, you get the the sitting close, you get the hearing that, you know, listening to someone's voice, um, which is different um, and sort of that full bodily presence. So I do think it's important to value in-person communication. Um, But I also think that in our Zoom time, I would say, well, think about kind of how can you maximize activeness and interaction um, Mm -hmm. in kids' technology use? So Mm -hmm. maybe they're playing a video game while you're looking on and chatting about it. Or, you know, maybe they're um, Zooming with their friend while they're doing some activity. So kind of prioritizing that versus just zoning out in front of a screen. Right. Right. And it is different if kids are playing Minecraft by themselves or kids are having their have their headsets on and are interacting with three of their friends. I mean, there it's a different exactly. level of communication and interaction. What I've seen in my own practice and working with kids is oftentimes those on online interactions like you're talking about lead to offline interactions. So they'll talk, they'll come in the next day wanting to talk about, you know, what happened in Minecraft and things like that. So right. Especially if you see, you know, that it's leading to more um, in terms of interaction, I think that it's not some such a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So, f- for parents new to, new to new to thinking about communication, whether they have young kids or older kids, what how do you, how do you, what mindset do you suggest to that that embodies the way you think about healthy communication and this purposeful communication to help our kids grow? Yeah, so I would really think about um, being mindful at first, just thinking about raising your own self-awareness, starting with the strengths in your family. So even noticing, well, when does conversation seem to work the best for us? You know, um, is it that, oh, we can have these long conversations in the car driving to Mm -hmm. school, or I notice my child's opening up to me really on the way home from basketball. And and starting with what's really going well for your family, um, since every family has kind of their own conversational strengths. Um, and then saying, well, where are kind of the pain points or the areas where I just feel like, oh, this is so um, a time when we just are so shut down or just at each other's throats and things like that. 
um, and starting to piece apart well, what could be happening there. So mm-hmm. just really taking that compassionate but kind of curious approach to investigate, you know, what is going on in the dynamics. Um, I think a lot about temperament as well. And there's a chapter about mm-hmm. temperament mm-hmm. and not just a child's temperament, but the fit between yourself and your children and all of the family members. Um, so it may be that, you know, you're trying to push a conversation at six in the morning when your child is yeah, still not- really mm-hmm. a night owl and not doing it. Um, you know, that's an extreme, but that kind of thing. So starting to investigate, well, what is happening and how can we make some small shifts in the, in the dynamic? I think is the first step. Uh, and I like I like the focus on awareness, obviously a really important part of how we think here. And it it's so key. So like you're saying, often I thought of the car, car ride with with our kids over the years. Like the, the eye-to-eye sit-down conversations, especially as kids get older, can be really feel really uncomfortable and really intimidating. Whereas when yeah. you are doing something with them in a low, seemingly like a low stakes environment, there's so much more opportunity. The other, the other part is bedtime, right? When we are exhausted and we are saying goodnight and we're doing the tuck in and then all of a sudden someone who <laughs> yes. didn't want to talk to you all day wants to talk for an hour. Right. <laughs> that's what happens. Yes, for sure. Um, and I also liked what you're talking about with temperament because we, there are kids that, um, will literally talk all the time and you're trying to maybe turn down the volume on that. And you have other kids that don't want to share at all. They're much more internal. Um, and it is trying to figure out with these different temperaments, knowing your own, how do we blow on these embers? You know, like, so what's the strategy for these kids that I know you get asked this a lot, the kids who are internal, they're quote, shut down. They don't express themselves or they don't want to talk to me. How do parents go about that temperament? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. And I think the start would really be, sounds maybe counterintuitive, but to lessen the pressure on yourself as a parent and also on the child. I think that it can kind of get so ramped up um, with kids like that, where it feels like you're just trying to wring something out of the child and the child feels either ashamed or embarrassed or just shy, whatever, and doesn't want to come out with something. So I actually think unless it's an extreme where the child is sort of mute, I would just really lessen the pressure and start to find ways of communicating maybe that feel much lower stakes, almost like you're saying. So I've had a lot of success even with things like drawing. So just sitting and saying, you know, I'm going to draw a picture of something. I get home, I'm going to, you know, draw a picture of what I see. Um, Do you want to draw something? And Or even not, I might just leave the paper there. Um, And almost these sort of nonverbal modeling, I think can be really, really helpful because a child usually does have something to say to you. It's just that sometimes the pressure can get in the way. I also think about the times when our kids, again, particularly perhaps as they get older and more internal, just with teenagehood, they surprise you when all of a sudden they have something to say, which is always at the most 
inopportune time when you have to finish an email, get out the door, or whatever you have to do. Right. <laughs> and it's like uh, it's like I can tell you from experience, it's so important to try to drop everything and be present because they're opening right. a door where it works for them. But boy, are the timing of it often. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's what's that's what's so hard and funny about communication is that you can try to script things, you can try to make it perfect, and you will find that nothing goes as planned, um, that your no. perfect conversation turns out to be exactly what your child doesn't need, but they have some other plan for you. Um, I want to highlight a part of your book where that you specifically take on talking to kids about bias. And, you know, this is a, this is a newer, um, unfortunately newer, but also fortunately newer mm -hmm. conversation that we're explicitly learning about how to have with others and how to raise our kids, um, to affirm differences, right. To, 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 understand injustice, to be a part of social justice. How, how do you think about those conversations? Yeah, so I've actually been really interested in that topic for quite some time, um, both in my clinical work, but especially in parenting as I've seen my kids evolve. And I really do think that it's important to talk about differences of all kinds with all kids. Um, so not to say, oh, that these conversations should be only for the kids who are struggling or these, you know, conversations about learning difficulties are only for the kids who are having learning challenges or something like that. I think that really all kids should be made aware of differences, but not in a negative way um, to be made aware of it in a positive light to say, well, all of us have differences. Um, and part of what I've learned um, through my work in assessment and teaching is that every child has what we call learning profile. So they all have strengths and weaknesses in certain areas. They all have, you know, challenges in reading comprehension or word problems or whatever, even if they're succeeding wildly in school, they still have this profile. So to recognize, well, this is what's hard for me. This is what's easier for me. Um, and seeing that for other kids, they also have these profiles. Um, and that, in some ways, you know, we put this emphasis in our society saying, well, you know, it's great to be really fast at math facts. That means you're smart, you know, but that's really artificial. It doesn't mean you're smart to be super fast at math facts. Um, and so to really help kids be aware of the narratives that they tell themselves and even that we tell them about intelligence and about value and to realize that a lot of these are really artificial, I think, is one big start. So, I mean, a lot of this is really thinking about what we're saying and, and, exactly. <laughs> and thinking about how we are communicating instead of just kind of going off the cuff. Exactly. Yeah. And I think even thinking about how we're teaching, whether you're a teacher or a parent, just how you're communicating about learning and making sense of the world and fairness and all of that, I think is, is so key. Mm-hmm. To... Two really important characteristics that uh, people are interested in, parents are interested in raising in their kids, and what we are wanting our kids to have are empathy and resilience, which, of course, you hit both of those in the book. Tell us a little bit about how to purposefully raise empathy and increase resilience in our kids through conversation. 
Yes. Yeah, so, so I'll start with empathy. I think they're both um, they're both so important and actually related in some ways. Um, and with empathy, I really think about there being three components. Um, so this is from the research is that um, there's part that's sort of the affective or feeling side. So actually kind of feeling into somebody else's emotions that might be kind of, oh, I really feel your pain, that kind of thing, or feel your happiness. Um, and then also the perspective taking side, so more of the mental side. And that's really the ability to shift and to say, oh, I understand that, you know, this person um, might be upset, even though I wouldn't be upset in that situation. Um, and thirdly, there's what we call compassionate empathy or the ability to take action based on what you sense somebody's feeling. So, you know, my friend is sad, so I decided to, you know, bring them flowers or something basic like that. Um, and I really think you need all of these components. Um, and we don't always emphasize all three of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I like to have conversations that not only do the, you know, how is the other person feeling, but also, you know, how can you help or what do you think they need? Um, and really emphasizing taking the time to ask them or to sit mm -hmm. with them and that one size doesn't fit all. So oftentimes when we think about empathy, we think about, well, help somebody who's struggling. But what does it mean to help that person? You know, even if you have good intentions, that mm -hmm. person might not want your flowers. You know, they might want something else. And so right. to really understand what is it that this person in front of me needs emotionally mm -hmm. and physically um, mm -hmm. and recognizing that that might not be what you would want in that situation. Mm -hmm. I think that is so important, um, especially for kids and for everyone, but yeah. especially for kids who are developing that. You're um, you're, let so me, yeah, let me, let me just jump in here on the empathy <laughs> thing. You're reminding me of another guest who was talking about um, giving and, and, and in the relation of empathy and was with, her daughter was giving extra food to someone they knew who seemed like they needed it. And the lesson that they learned was it was completely offensive to that person to give them that food. And they were coming from just an assumption of, oh, this is something they look like they're hungry. And so I'm going right. to give them this. And it isn't so it isn't one size. It's there's a lot to think about when we are caring about others and thinking about how to take action. Exactly. And I think to recognize that the good intention is is great. So it's great that you want to help them. So now let's see if we can make that more nuanced. You know, how can we help in a way that's, you know, that's really helpful for them? Mm -hmm. um, so I love that because I think it's not as though, oh, you did a bad thing, quote unquote, but it's just that, oh, well, how could we make that, you know, more nuanced in a way? Or how can we have that discussion that's a bit more complex? Um, so, yeah, I think that's so important. Resilience, I think, is, is such a huge topic now, especially um, given the pandemic, but just in general, is how do we have these conversations for resilience? Um, and I think that really the conversation um, mixed with action is so key. So having talks, but then actually helping children do things, maybe stretch themselves, challenge themselves and reflect as well. So I think conversations, you know, in a vacuum can only go so far. Mm -hmm. So you really want to help kids make a step, think about what they want to do, and then say, well, how did it go? How could it go better? Um, and actually, I had a conversation with my son recently, who's five, mm -hmm. which I think was just was so telling. And it relates to this, um, which is that uh, he's has a lot of he's, you know, loves to play games, but um 
he can get really, really upset when he loses, which like a lot of five-year-olds, um, mm-hmm. he just has a tantrum and he can't do it anymore. Um, and so first he wanted to learn to play chess because my daughter is, likes to play chess. And I was like, well, this is kind of hard for you, but okay, we'll, we'll learn. Um, and that I was sort of, without even meaning to, just letting him win. And he was always saying, well, don't let me win. You know, it's, it's not fair. You're just letting me win. And he so knows. I was like, okay, I won't let you win. Yeah, he knows. So I was like, okay, fine. So then I started not letting him win. And then he got upset as, <laughs> as was right. going to happen because he lost. Um, and so I was like, this is just, you know, and he's like, I'm going to give up. I just, I, I'm not going to play chess. And I was thinking, well, okay, is there some other way that we can make this work? Um, and I started to think, and actually by accident, I made a mistake in the chess game. And I kind of sat there and, and he looked at it and, and then I said, oh, I made a mistake. I didn't realize that. And he's, his face sort of lit up and he said, where, where's the mistake? You know? And I said, I'm not going to tell you, why don't you figure it out? Uh, and so he, and he actually had such a fun time with that. And mm. what actually ended up happening is now what we do is we sit down and he says, mom, will you play mistakes with me? <laughs> and, um, and what it is, is that we play, I play just normally, but every so often I make a mistake. And he says, I'm going to figure it out where your mistake is. And then every so often he makes a mistake and says, oh, can you figure out where my mistake is? Um, And so in that way, the game becomes much more about figuring out the process, kind of analyzing the journey and not so much. He actually has stopped caring, at least in this case, about if he's winning or losing, because it's more about who has better mistakes. (laughs) And um, I think that's kind of a, a metaphor in some ways for this resilience conversation, which is just you know, think about how can you recover well from your mistakes or how can you analyze and, you know, celebrate your mistakes in some ways rather than shying away from them. And it's so important for parents to model that as you did you, oh, I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. You were, you were inquisitive about it. You were curious about it. You Mm -hmm. didn't throw the board, scream, throw a piece across the room, (laughs) right? You didn't quit. You know, you were also modeling for him as like, oh, I made a mistake and (laughs) let's figure this out. Right, exactly. And almost as if, oh, you can analyze that. We can learn from that. You know, um, kind of how can we, what can we do with that rather than saying, oh, we're going to quit now or I'm going to, can I redo it or, you know, that kind of thing. So rather than seeing it with regrets, kind of seeing it as Mm -hmm. a more of a game or something funny. And to use some parenting lingo, um, we've all heard about helicopter parenting, which seemed to come about a while ago. And we're Mm -hmm. trying to get away from it because, you know, when we are hovering, usually because of good intention um, and, you know, not wanting our kids to suffer, wanting our kids to be successful. What we inadvertently do is take away opportunities for resilience, um, to learn resilience and to to feel resilient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think actually what's funny is that my initial proposal for this book was a book about helicopter parenting and how we could get away Uh, from it, (laughs) which I think uh, is really funny. Uh, And my editor actually thought, oh, it'd be interesting if you kind of think about that through more of a speech and language perspective. Um, So that is definitely something that informs my thinking a lot is that how can we step back a little bit and let kids take on more of the responsibility and, and something that they want to do. So kids often want to be having more control, more responsibility. Um, and that it's, you know, in our good intention way, we, we can strip some of that away. I like that. Um, 
recently, Dr. Kenneth Ginsburg, a resiliency expert that many people know about, was on the show, and he was talking about, so he's coined lighthouse parenting. He's been talking a lot about lighthouse parenting, which I loved. I hadn't heard that concept. Mm -hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. being on the shore, uh, particularly where you are, I have it, you know, I have this East Coast, Atlantic sort of feeling, the Northeast, yes. <laughs> being on a shore and lighting the seas to help guide your child who is in calm waters, will be in unsettled waters, and you're there as a solid guide shining a light to help them through, but it's, you're not doing it. That's great. That's great. And I think, um, especially in terms of conversation, I love that because it's so much about you can kind of map the narrative. So what's the frame of the narrative here? You know, in the case of mistakes, it's they're saying, well, okay, let's let's take a look at our mistakes. Let's celebrate them and analyze them. But you're not telling your child, you know, oh, well, say this to me, or I'm gonna say that, or you do this. So it's it's much more opening it up for your child and kind of having an eye out, but mm -hmm. not necessarily being right there micromanaging for mm -hmm. sure. So what do you believe people will take away from your book? Yeah, so a few things. Um, I think first, this idea just to pay attention to language. So I think language is a gateway to so many other things, um, to so many skills, and that we're often on autopilot. So we often just don't take the time to notice it, and we don't take the time just for these small opportunities. Um, I also really want to emphasize that these language, daily conversations, these things accumulate. So we don't see them as much. So I think we often see and celebrate, you know, the medal because of the track meet or the straight A's or something like that. But really, these are some of the most important things you can do for your kids. It's just to have these daily conversations that give them kind of good in the moment relations and good modeling, but also that set them up for success and thriving over the long term. Mm -hmm. um, and I love to kind of highlight the fact that we don't notice those things and just to bring it into the conversation that this is what kids need and this is what they're often looking for, even though, mm -hmm. you know, we're often kind of gliding over it. So totally. uh, I hope that they also feel inspired to do that. And those conversations do, um, set a foundation for a relationship and a way of relating with your kids. And I'll say to all of you who have uh, preteens and teens where all of a sudden you don't get the memo and the conversations just go dark and you are suddenly completely annoying and taking up, um, you know, airspace <laughs> that, that doesn't belong to you. Um, those are periods of time correlated with uh, teenagers' brain development, hormonal development, um, lots social, lots going on, and it comes back. It comes back. So um, we can't. It's 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 not easy, but just know it's not gone forever. Exactly. Yeah, and I do think that the principles I talk about can be for all ages, but mm -hmm. obviously look so different. So when you're talking yeah. to a teenager. You know, um, but still child driven. So I often have teenagers um, who really brighten up if you say, well, can you can you teach me something like can you teach me how to work your video game or can you teach me mm -hmm. how to fix the car? You know, right. something like that. So right. sometimes giving that extra um, sense of like, I'm going to be the student now can be really helpful. Totally. I uh, I often tell the story of um, 
my son and I had battles about first person shooter games as you know, I held out as long as I could. And he was the only one who didn't have them. I'm like, you know, it's what I do for a mm-hmm. living and blah, blah, blah. And ultimately, um, once I, you know, it, it, it happened anyways, um, the way for me to relate for a period of time was to say, Hey, can I come and watch? Will you explain this to me? And then all of a sudden it was, Hey dad, like, mm-hmm. do you want to try? And I was terrible at it, but I, but it was like, it was the way to relate to him to where he was, even if it wasn't my content of choice, it became a gateway and a bridge during that time for communication. Exactly. I love that. And I think that we often have this sort of all or nothing sort of, it's, you know, it's my terms or it's not happening, but I think that I love that because that is sort of joining with him where he was, uh, which is just what I mean. Okay, Rebecca, it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, an awareness of yourself as a parent, or an awareness of your parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on yourself, your kids, or those you love. Great. So yes, I've been thinking about this a lot and also thinking about the question of resilience as we were talking um, and I thought of one moment actually uh, at the start of the pandemic um, when I've always loved swimming, but all of the swimming pools were closed. So I actually felt I was very frustrated. We were all stuck in our house. Um, and what I ended up doing is that all of our I had a swimmer friend of mine, a triathlete, and she said, well, why don't you go out to Walden Pond, which is um, in Concord Mass an open water lake and just go swimming in the lake? You know, and to me, I thought, well, no, I don't do that. I don't swim in lakes. I, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's who knows what's in there and yeah. it's cold and no, thank you. Um, and I, it was interesting cause I was listening to my kids who were also kind of feeling cooped up and inside. And one day she convinced me and I said, okay, we're all going to go out here and I'm going to start swimming in the lake. And they, they said, that's really weird, you know? Um, and I did it just one time and I only stayed in for 20 minutes or so. And then they actually were with my husband playing on, in the field uh, nearby, and I loved it. And I actually realized that it was almost a refuge for me. There's a sense of being able to get away, do something I loved in nature, and have my kids also come along and be in nature and kind of have this experience. Um, I also realized that I was thinking about risk kind of in a little bit of a constrained way. So I was thinking and kind of modeling for my kids oh, no, that something bad could happen. I, I don't want to stretch myself. I don't want to challenge myself. Um, and what ended up happening, actually, is I started to release that sense of fear and kind of avoidance of risk. And we started to go all the time. Um, I started to swim laps. I got a wetsuit. I, you know, I went into mid-October, even on my birthday. Oh, wow. <laughs> and um, and it, it was just a really liberating experience. And it actually changed my conversation with my kids about risk-taking and about challenging mm. themselves. Um, and at the same time, it made me realize when we talk about self-care. And I realized actually in the conversations on the way home, they would always just they would joke with me and laugh. They would, you know, say, oh, did you kick a turtle? Because, you know, there's all these turtles <laughs> in the pond. Or did you see the fish and the jellyfish? You know, and the, they actually, at the same time, they were seeing beavers in the woods and giving them names. And there's a lot of, like, na- natural experiences happening. And so I realized kind of that it really is true that to find your own refuge or your own place of kind of calm really does translate to your children as well. Um mm-hmm. 
at the same time as just being able to challenge yourself and have your kids see you challenging yourself in a new yes. way, I think. Yes. Kind of let, let us all see each other in a new light. So yeah, that's my moment. <laughs> that is a great moment. That is a great moment. You stretched yourself, you showed your kids, um, <laughs> you changed you and how you, how you saw nice. risk and, um, mm-hmm. You got to talk to your kids about taking some chances, even if things a little, even if it's a little weird. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Still is fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Once it gets, there's no ice, maybe I'll try again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing that story with us and um, for writing this book. Uh, For people, I'm holding it right here. We're looking at it in our video. It is, um, when it showed up, it was, it was, larger than I thought it would be. And what I'm saying that is like, <laughs> yes. if there is so much information and yet the information is presented in such a user-friendly, personal, conversational tone and really divided out very um, specifically about different um, aspects of communication in terms of what you're trying to build in your kids. Uh, so tell everyone where they can find your book and um, everything else that you're doing. Great. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So I do hope it's an accessible book. It's meant for anyone who works with kids or raises kids. So parents or teachers or caregivers of any kind. Um, and you can find me on my, I have a website. So just Rebecca Um The book should be out in various bookstores around the country or um, on Amazon. You can also find me on Twitter at um, Roland underscore RG. Um, so I just have started Twitter and Instagramming. Um, and yeah, I'd love to start the conversation. So um, especially if you have stories or ideas that come out of reading the book, I'd love to hear back from you. Awesome. This is The Art of Talking with Children, The Simple Keys to Nurturing Kindness, Creativity, and Confidence in Kids. Who does not want to do that? Everyone wants to do that. All right, everyone. That concludes our show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your five-star reviews. Thank you for bringing others to our wonderful community. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll dot com forward slash ads for more information go to exactly listen subscribe and leave us a review on apple podcasts stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts